with the beginning of the new year becomes a brings a new book of the Bible. If you're new with us, we always do the Gospels in the fall, and for the past several years, we've attempted to tackle different types of genre of Scripture. For different books are to be read differently within the text of Scripture. Uh, you, think about it. You don't read a sports magazine the same way you do a National Geographic. The statement, the lions destroyed the cardinals, is very different in each of those books. Uh, same thing with Scripture. Psalms is not primarily historical, even though it takes place within history. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It's also dripping with sarcasm. Uh, the author of Hebrews should, is, not, is written differently than many of the Old Testament prophets. However, uh, one of the hopes I have is as we've walked through different genres of literature, that no matter where we find ourselves, that it makes much of Christ. The word of God given to his people in the book of the Bible makes much of the word that became flesh that dwelt among us. Today, we start a new letter. We're diving into 1 Corinthians, or as much of the world calls it, 1 Corinthians. And as we begin it today, I want to modernize what is happening the best I can. By doing that, I don't mean I'm changing the message, but I mean to help us understand what's happening in the first century. So to do that, I thought I'd put together three stories this morning. Three stories that tell us much about one letter. First stories, the first story begins with a high school girls basketball team out of Hollywood. They're living up to their reputation. They are known in the school hallways as a bunch of divas. Now, even in Hollywood, that is not the school mascot, but the reputation has become so well known, not just around the school, but the whole school district. What makes them divas, you might ask? Well, instead of being a team of five people on the court, they regularly play like it's all about the individual. While there isn't an I in team, there is an I in diva. They compete to see who can score the most in a game, not just against the other team, though, but against one another. And while some games have been won at the beginning of the season with the strategy, as the season goes on, the results are driving a further wedge in the group. Their coach, to her effort, speaks of unity, speaks of collective, but the divas don't pay much attention to her. They liked last year's coach more, and some of the players are more attached to the assistant coach, who they believe should have been the coach to begin with. There is infighting on the court, in the hallways, on the bus, in the locker room, and while they wear the same jersey, the name on the back takes precedent over the name on the front. It's a basketball coach's worst nightmare. Really, it's any coach's worst nightmare. And it compounds itself when some of the top players stop showing up for games. The coach is beside herself. Uh, not knowing what to do, she weeps in her office as the players find rides home after the latest game. The second story takes place on the university. While boasting of intellectual well once boasting of intellectually rigorous education and with an extremely high job placement rate, the school has sought to appeal to the desires of the generation and added a whole new department. And thanks to this new department, there is an overwhelming focus on human bodies. And I don't mean that in the plural sense. Where classrooms were once the focus, the activities that took place in dorm rooms now became the highlight for most students. 
Even the ones that still went there for a degree, they didn't make a big deal of the work that was being done behind closed doors. Uh, the university became so well known for their extracurricular activities going on that it began to be the reputation of the school, including some of the consequences would come with such activities, which made its way to the press. And when asked for comment, instead of a renewed focus on education, the university doubled down. Here's the statement they released. We desire well-rounded students who will be able to express themselves, investigate, and use their imagination in all areas of life. And those who oppose this type of education are no more than bigots and are being left behind in this brave new world. You see, there's no such thing as sin if everything is celebrated, and celebrated it is at this university, with marches and parade to boast its new focus of the school. And while the occasional victim does try to speak out in the midst of the applause, they are quickly put to the back of the line in favor with those of bigger bank accounts and louder social media presence. Uh, the third story concerns a church. One church outside of Metropolis is very considerate of self-expression, so much so that you never know what will show up in the worship band the next week. Kazoo, cello, tambourine, spoons. You never know who's going to be singing or what language it's going to be in. High notes are belted out even when the piano demands a soft moment of reflection. If you've got a word, you can share it. If you've got an advertisement, you can share that too. If you've got a new handshake that you think the congregation should adapt, well, by all means, share it. It's all about pleasing you. The Lord's Supper is shared every week, but sometimes it's only some of the people that are invited. Other times, everyone is invited only with what they brought. And during the meal, uh, they play a game, kind of like catchphrase, uh, as they try to create new words to the sound of applause of those who are playing and to the confusion of everyone watching who has showed up for the first time. Questions about who to worship or what to worship or where to worship or how to worship are never asked. It would actually be offensive to do so. The only question that is given any focus is what shall I do next? These three modern stories give us the history of the church in Corinth. And if you haven't figured it out yet, these people are messed up. But what stays in Vegas stays in Vegas. And what stays, happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And these two cities actually have a lot in common. Vegas today is a synonym for vices. And Corinth literally became the byword for immorality in the old world. And immorality, well, seems always to pop back up even when one battles against it. Now, just like Corinth, just like Corinth. You see, Corinth was destroyed by the Romans, believe it or not, in 146 B.C. But 100 years later... A guy named J.C., not Jesus Christ, but Julius Caesar, refounded the city during his reign. And it soon became a large cosmopolitan city with great importance, both politically and commercially. So if you're tracking, it was destroyed in 146 B.C. J.C., the one with the salad named after him, refounded the city 100 years later. And then 100 years after that, a guy named Paul finds his way to Corinth. Yes, that Paul, the Apostle Paul. You can read about it all in Acts 18. And he was there for 18 months preaching the gospel. 
And because of his preaching of the gospel, a people of vice found a Christ of virtue. Well, at least a large enough number did. They formed a church, and Paul soon left to plant other churches as he was called. Now, Paul loved the church of Corinth because his God loved the people of Corinth. But news soon came to him that trouble was brewing. In modern terms, there was a team full of divas, a Greek house that was throwing one too many parties, and a church that couldn't make up its mind about what would happen on Sundays. And so Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, decides to pen a letter to them, a letter that as an apostle apostle, contained the very words of God. Let's see how this letter starts, right? We've dealt with some of the issues they're dealing with. I'm sure it's going to be a doozy, right? Please stand for the reading of the word of God. First Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What do you think he's going to say next, right? Grace, grace, grace. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father God, as we look at this text, Lord, I ask that you would use me as a vessel to speak to your people, because without your Spirit's presence, Lord, my words are nothing more than a noisy gong. So Lord, may you challenge us and comfort us this morning based on the reading of the word of God. Your son's name I pray. Amen. We find here a response of thanksgiving. What just happened? What just happened? Look, if you read 1 Corinthians this week, you're going to find out that this is a messed up congregation. This is a messed up people. They don't seem to get much right in Corinth. And my heart is wired to deal with foolishness in a very different way than the Apostle Paul's heart is wired to deal with foolishness. I would have started my letter very differently. Here's if I were in charge of 1 Corinthians' letter. I, A.J., called by the will of God to be the pastor, uh, a pastor of Christ Jesus with our brothers and sisters in Hicksville to the church in Corinth. Stop being stupid. <laughs> exclamation part, exclamation part. 
Also, be ready for a talking to. When me and Jack get back, I will be the one in the parking lot with the bat. I have, I, have, I have interacted with a wide range of people in my day, and I don't think I'm alone in my assessment. When we are confronted with bad news, with bad reports, our heart's inclination is not one of thanksgiving. Not to thank God for the very people who are making our lives difficult. Can you imagine walking into work on Monday and the place that you work is a mess because someone came in over the weekend, moved all your documents around, messed with the machinery, messed with your classroom, screwed up everything while you were gone, and your initial response is, why, thank God. <laughs> but that speaks to something very profound here, does it not? Maybe, maybe, the Lord was serious when he said, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All of Paul's letters are to churches that have problems, with a capital problems. And all of Paul's letters open with thanksgiving. This can teach us a very clear lesson from the scriptures. I've read, I'll read 1 Thessalonians again. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, if you're like me, you might be asking, how do I do that? I mean, really? When stuff goes wrong after I've worked on it for 18 months, I leave town and then I start getting like telegrams that stuff's not as it should be, I typically don't get thankful. But as I've thought about this all week, as I've prayed about this all week, I'm like, what's the heart of the matter here? What's the crux of the matter here? Why is it that my heart cannot be like Paul's in these circumstances? It really comes down to this. Do I believe God? can use the sin of others for his glory. Do I believe God can use the sin of others for his glory? This happens all the time within scripture. You might remember Joseph, one of a dozen brothers, a little bit of a big talker. God speaks to him in a dream. Brothers don't like the dream, Opportunity presents itself to get rid of Joe, and they sin. They take that opportunity. Joseph ends up in Egypt, living at Potiphar's house. Joseph does the right thing when the wife of Potiphar tries to do the wrong thing, and it is he that gets punished. Joseph ends up in prison in Egypt. He interprets a few more dreams, being told to men uh, that say they'll help him get out of this predicament, but they forget. So now he's forgotten in prison in Egypt. When the man finally remembers, at just the right time, 
to just the right person. He remembers. God moves, raises Joseph, and almost two decades later, he finds himself standing before his brothers who had sold him into slavery. And what does Joseph say to him? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as you are today. God uses the sin of others for his glory all the time. He keeps going. God uses the unbelief of the spies in the wilderness to prepare his people to take the land after 40 years of wandering. God uses the doubt of Gideon. Remember that story when we were in Judges? For his own glory. God uses the sin of Gomer to show his love through Hosea. God uses the pride of the Jews to reject the cornerstone and crucify the Christ to what? To bring salvation for the nations. We can be thankful in all circumstances because we have a God that works all things together for good. And that includes divas and the sexual immoral and the idol worshipers. Romans 8.28 For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we can stop. We can give thanks. Because if you're here today and you're saved, not only will God work all things together, he's going to work out your salvation. Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And notice in all those verses I just read, it states the same echoes that take place in 1 Corinthians. It's like this is an overarching theme of scripture. And that's this. Thanksgiving, glory, trust, hope. All directed to Jesus. Thanksgiving, glory, trust, hope. All directed to Jesus. Notice how Jesus is the center of 1 Corinthians 1 through 9. If you do have your Bibles open, notice how many times his name is used, how many times it's either his real name or a pronoun referring to him. Nine verses, nine mentions of Jesus. Jesus, as the one who called Paul to the apostleship, verse 1. The one in whom the Corinthians have been made holy and upon whose name they call, verse 2. The giver of grace, verse 3. The one in whom that grace has been given, verse 4. Jesus is the source of all riches, verse 5. The subject of Paul's teaching, verse 6. The basis of Christian hope, verse 7. The whole of history is pointing forward to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8. When he shall return as judge and king. Yet the same Jesus is the one with whom we have fellowship, communion, life in common in the meantime. Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 9. The reason Paul can give thanks, give glory, give trust, and direct hope is because Jesus saturates all of Paul's life. Jesus saturates all of Paul's life, which is next fill in the blank. Jesus in all of life. Jesus in all of life. One of the main reasons we don't see the gospel take root in all areas of our culture is because we have bifurcated, that's a fun word, uh, we have bifurcated, we have divided 
Jesus with the rest of life. We've put Jesus over here, and we've, we've put the rest of life over here. Uh, Jesus is our Sunday buddy. He's our 911 call. He, he's, our, uh, sta- he's stashed away on a bookshelf if we need him. And then the rest of life, our work, our sex life, our parenting styles, our hobbies, our sports teams, over here, they're completely apart from Jesus because, hey, Jesus saves. And since I'm saved now, yeah, I can do whatever I want. But this is never the message of the gospel. This is never the message of scripture. Jesus is clear. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is not because he's some like boogeyman up there waiting to get you. But by keeping his commandments blessing can come to your life. This has always been one of the chief purposes of his commandments, for your blessing. Deuteronomy 30, 16. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But like many of us who have divided Jesus to only exist in our spiritual lives and nowhere else, the Corinthians are in the same spot. This is not like a welcome to America. We have a new issue that has never been addressed in the Bible. That's not how this works. Many commentators have said and have referred to the book of Corinthians as the book of modern America because Corinth is dealing with the same issues. They're dealing with many of the same same things we do. They believe falsely many of the same lies that the enemy uh, of the enemy as we do today. So Paul has a goal that he sets forth as he writes this letter to the Corinthians. Let me give you the goal that he has in mind. Paul wants to bring our relationship with Jesus to bear on every area of life of the Corinthians, not just the areas that we're comfortable with. Paul wants to bring our relationship with Jesus to bear on every area of life of the Corinthians, not just the areas that they are comfortable with. Likewise, in this sermon series, we're going to be doing the same thing in our lives. Let me just be honest with you. There is difficulty in 1 Corinthians. Here's the difficulty of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to be real with you. This is a hard book. This book forces us to deal with our stories, the conflicts that we have with others in the church, the lies regarding sexuality that we believe, church discipline, worship, all the hot button issues that we don't like to talk about in the fellowship hall after service, we get to talk about in here. Huzzah! And there was much rejoicing in the land. This book is going to force us to realize and take ownership of the sin that exists in our culture, in our church walls, And in the heart that now beats a few ticks faster at the mention of all those sins. We have to understand that many times, we have to understand that many times we are the divas on the basketball team. 
We are the university students defining what is morally right for us sexually when God says something plainly very different in Scripture. We have to understand that we are the church members who are so prone to idolize a style or a practice or a kind of worship that if it's taken away from us, we're leaving because, well, worship all along was really about our comfort and entertainment and not about his glory. We are the three stories. And we have to bring the gospel to bear on those areas of our lives that we have sequestered from the glory of God. Why? Because God is a tyrant. No, to quote Paul again, by no means. Because in bringing the gospel to bear, in bringing the gospel to bear, when crap hits the fan, when life is hard, when work isn't going well, when marriage is on ice, when our kids are walking through hard things, when church is difficult because other people show up on Sunday, when all those things happen, when all those things happen, our response can be thanksgiving, glory, trust, and hope in Jesus. That's Paul's confidence to the Corinthian church as he begins this letter. Even with all their mess. That's my confidence with Cornerstone Church in Hicksville. With all our mess. Why is Paul confident? Why am I confident? Why are the elders of this church confident? Because the basis of our confidence is not on my eloquence for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. It's not the Hendersons or the Savages music talents. It's not the programs we have. It's not even the great people that serve here. Our confidence is in Christ. We can say with Paul, who will sustain you to the end, Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful. The question now turns to you and me. I got to deal with this too. I've just dealt with it all week. The question now turns to you. How will you respond to a letter like this? Let me tell you the three ways the stories unfold. Three stories in our response. The divas at the Hollywood basketball team received a letter from their old coach who had heard about what was happening. They were encouraged by the thankfulness that began the letter, but when it got to the parts of the letter that challenged them, that called them to something different, something better, well, they just threw the letter away. The season ended without playoffs, and the pursuit of the game ended for most of the team because they never became a team. A lack of purpose beyond themselves left them without a sport with each other because they had lost faith in each other. Their response was not to listen to the words of the letter because that's what pride does. The university, ironically, had been through the Me Too movement. They had seen what happens without sexual limits. Abuse runs rampant. But most of us are fine with sexual abuse if it isn't happening to us. And that's as clear as it can be in our culture right now. Most of us are fine with sexual abuse as long as it isn't happening to us. They can show up in children's literature and most of us wouldn't flinch. Especially if we get some of the benefits that aren't as dark as the other people are doing engaged in. The university received a letter from the previous dean calling the school to return to its roots on which it was founded. They again were thankful for the opening sentences. I mean, who wouldn't be thankful for God saying, I am thankful for you? 
But when Jesus began to condemn what they called good, their response was wrath. The church got a letter from a former pastor. Not everyone knew him, but many knew his reputation. And they too were blessed by the opening salvo of thankfulness, but it was for a very different reason that they were blessed. They understood the root of their shared thankfulness was in the work of Christ and not their own work. So when they turned to the rest of the letter and they were challenged over and over again, they took it to heart. They confessed sin. They wept together when needed. They reconciled with one another. Their response was confession of sin and glory to God. Three stories, one letter. What will your response be as we move through this letter together? Will it be to not listen? Will it be wrath? Or will it be confession and being met by the gospel? I hope you remember these three stories as we progress. You've already heard my prayer for the year. I'm going to state it again. My prayer for the year is that evil would be exposed. That it would be met by the gospel. That evil would be exposed in the world. And it would be met by the gospel. That conflict would be exposed in our walls. And it would be met by the gospel. That sin would be exposed in our hearts. And it would be met by the gospel. How does the gospel meet us? One of the ways is repentance. We repent of our sin. When we see sin, we ask the Lord to forgive us. We ask him to help us turn from our sin, help us overcoming it in the future. And in doing so, what does God give us when we confess sin? He offers us peace and hope in a relationship with him. Like the Pauline letters, God's natural disposition towards his people is one of affection. You need to hear that. It's one of affection. He actually cares about you. Even in knowing all your issues. And when we confess and we repent of sin, he offers us forgiveness of sin because of Jesus' work on the cross. He died so that we may not have to experience the pains of death. Let's prepare our hearts for the table by doing just that. We celebrate the Lord's table here every month, and one of the reasons we do that, outside of the fact that the Lord commands it, is that it gives us an opportunity to examine our hearts. Paul spends a lot of time, actually in this book, making sure that we approach the table in the right manner. Not glibly, not like many of the Corinthians that had bifurcated their faith from the rest of their life, but to consider our sin, to confess it to a holy God and be reminded that the Lord does not run away from it, but he welcomes us home when we repent with open arms. Confession is a Christian thing. And so we, as an opportunity, will confess our sins corporately, because we have corporate sins, 
and it'll give us time to confess, confess our sins privately for a few moments. So I pulled this prayer of confession out. I'm going to lead us through it. Because I started with a prayer from John Wesley, I felt it would make sense to do a confession by John Wesley too. So bow your heads with me as we confess our sins corporately before God. O merciful Father, do not consider what we have done against you, but what our blessed Savior has done for us. Do not consider what we have made of ourselves, but what he is making of us for you, our God. Oh, that Christ may be wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption to every one of our souls. May the precious blood may cleanse us from our sins and as your Holy Spirit renew and sanctify our souls. May he crucify our flesh with its passions and lusts and cleanse all our brothers and sisters in Christ across the earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.